I saw a lot of great, not just beautiful artwork for brands and around companies, but also business impactful as well. And the idea that a static two-dimensional surface, whether it's print or packaging, can still inspire and it can still uh, have a voice uh, mm-hmm. to talk to talk with people, I think is still very much evident today um, in a lot of ways. Well, good morning, friends. Welcome to the Quickie Podcast. It's episode 95, and I'm so glad you're here. I'm your host, Dave Hopkins, and today I've got an amazing guest for you. I think I say that every single episode, but it's an honest truth every single episode. Today, my guest is Nathan Royce. He's currently a creative director at R&R Partners in Las Vegas. He's also an avocado aficionado. He said it himself. The man loves an avocado. Now, Nathan has been a creative director and creative strategist in that Silicon Valley tech world. Google, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, doing creative for all of those companies. He likes to say the old he traded the Silicon shuffle for the Las Vegas hustle, right? Because he's in Vegas now. Love it. We talk about the Facebook analog lab in this episode, which is crazy. A tech company with print tech, like Printing, not office printers, but real printers. That is cool. We talk about print and the value of print and how print and digital can work in tandem together. He talks about a project he was a part of with Burger King and Facebook and how that all went down. We talk about a project that he had presented during his time at Facebook that kind of fell flat with the client and how that felt and what that was like. We also talk about a project that he's really proud of, and it has to do with the Affordable Health Care Act in the U.S. I don't want to say too much more about it because he tells the story way better than I do. Ladies and gentlemen, my amazing guest, Nathan Royce. Here we go. Welcome to the Quickie Podcast, the daily interview show where we talk to graphic designers about their journey to the creative field, and we do it in 30 minutes or less. So, are you ready for a Quickie? Good morning, Nathan. How are you, sir? Doing well, and you? I'm doing great. I'm excited to have you on the show. Same here, bud. You ready for a quickie? Absolutely. Let's do it. Attaboy. We'll briefly tell the listeners about yourself. Yeah. So my name is Nathan Royce. I'm uh, currently a creative director at R&R Partners, uh, working on primarily uh, digital, but also uh, broadcast and traditional content as well for our book of clients. And I've been uh, in Silicon Valley the past 10 years, been at uh, Google, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, making arounds as a creative. Uh, And I often... uh, Lovingly put it as uh, I went from the Silicon suf- Silicon Shuffle to the Las Vegas Hustle. So uh, <laughs> moved out here and uh, moved out to the desert, spread some wings and uh, get some freedom to think and uh, see what we can do together. I like that. So what is the current temperature right now in Las Vegas? Currently 90 degrees and sunny at 10, 17 a.m. Uh, 
yeah, the heat hasn't been too bad to tell you the truth. It's been nice coming from a place where it's between 56 degrees and 63 degrees throughout the year. It's nice to feel some real heat, a little bit of change of temperature. Nice. And I'm up in Vancouver, BC here and I go from a place where it's like, you know, 15 degrees Celsius and you need a coat and sweater in the morning to 30 degrees at the afternoon where you're significantly overdressed. Yeah, I know. Weather happens. Just yep. kind of go for it. Definitely. We all take that chance every morning we walk out the door. <laughs> That's it. We take the risk to leave the house. So I want to dive back even further and ask you about your childhood. I want to know, do you feel that you had a creative childhood and, and what might have made it that way? Yeah, you know, I think that I was really lucky to have parents who were allowed me to explore kind of geeky things and things that weren't of the mainstream and pop culture when I was really young. Um, you know, I remember when, you know, all my friends wanted to play baseball and football and all that. I actually wanted to go roller skating. You know, I spent most of my childhood as a competitive roller speed skater. No and, way. <laughs> uh, yes. And, um, and also a trumpet player. So that was my other thing is my parents raised me to uh, be a professional trumpet player. So and, I should be sitting in a pit orchestra in a symphony right now, but um, I actually found that kind of that creative side of me uh, that was through music for most of my life growing up um, ended up emerging as a also a visual uh, creative outlet for me um, as I grew into my kind of young adulthood. And, um, you know, I grew up studying music, playing music. That was my thing, what I was supposed to do. And I ended up going away to college. And, uh, you know, Western Michigan University, and I only made it two semesters. Um, and it was basically said, oh, you don't, you know, you don't have to stop playing trumpet, but you can't do it here. So um, <laughs> I needed to find something else to do, man. And yeah. so, uh, you know, there's just been a lot of different instances throughout my young childhood where, uh, you know, I was given the opportunity to pursue, you know, music or to pursue you know, taking the toaster apart and trying to put it back together or, you know, different curiosities um, you have as a kid. And now as a father, it's something that, you know, I try to do better as well for my children is to allow them to kind of pursue those curiosities mm -hmm. because I think, you know, it ends up shaping who you become as an, uh, you know, and how open you are to that into your, you know, your teenage years and, you know, your young adult years and whatnot. So, um, you know, I was put in fine arts camps uh, in, uh, you know, in middle school and things like this. So I was around other kids who I just, I saw it as kind of a, uh, you know, a world of misfit toys. And I've always <laughs> kind of felt like that in a lot of ways. And, I, you know, being able to have a family that let me get in, involved into that mm -hmm. and be okay with being different and thinking differently, um, you know, was something that was just uh, almost, um, you know, it's just very supported throughout my childhood. So you're always encouraged to really dive into something that you wanted to know more about, or you wanted to experience or learn about. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it was different, you know, coming from my parents' perspective, my father is a certified rocket scientist. So he is a doctorate of aeronautical engineering and Holy. worked worked for General Motors for, he decided to build, you know, motors instead of missiles, which uh, certainly respectful work for General Motors for, gosh, over 30 years, probably 35 years. Mm -hmm. um, and so for him to have, you know, I'm an only child too. So for him to have a son, I could barely pass, you know, just basic arithmetic for whatever reason, you know, and certainly algebra. And when things started getting conceptual like that is where I just fell off. Um, and so I think for him, 
he knew at a young age that I wasn't going to really fit that, I guess, family mold of being very, you know, I'm somewhat mechanically inclined, but I'm not mathematically inclined by any means. So he knew that I was going to need to find a different way. And that's why they led me to explore a lot. Yeah, that academic path just didn't let you up. Yeah, well, I thought about it in different ways. I, I approach things from academics. Even my work uh, that I do you know, today, I approach from a art and science point of view. Hmm. Um, and again, a lot of this stems from my childhood. My father and I, I remember having an, a discussion when I was very young, maybe seven years old, and there was an article in, paper, in the paper about the first com- personal computers coming out where you could make art on the computers. And my dad and I having a discussion about he thought that it wasn't or actually, at the time, I thought that it wasn't art because it was done on a computer. Mm-hmm. And my my dad argued, well, what is a paintbrush? He said a paintbrush is a piece of technology. You know, it's an older piece of technology, but such as a mouse at the time or a screen or whatever that is. So, mm-hmm. um, And I think when you layer in that artistic kind of foundation with, you know, in our case today with business goals and with um, allowing to actually do research and ha- to have hypotheses about the work and the, and the art that we're creating mm-hmm. and how that drives business, um, that still very much plays into kind of who I am um, and, and how I approach the work with my teams and with the agency is, um, you know, and a lot of what I found is that intersection between art and science mm-hmm. uh, is where like beautifully crafted, you know, commerce can happen. And uh, I think that there's a wonderful balance between artistic integrity and also driving business goals uh, for different brands. So true. Really well said, Nathan. I want to ask you if in that, um, in those younger years, when was the moment that you started really noticing design and art or the creative around you? Was there a moment that you remember where a switch just flipped for you? Yeah, well, I was an 80s kid. 80s kid, you know, so I grew up and, you know, before cable and all of that, but I grew up playing Legos, you know, in front of the screen. I I was an only child, you know, and so, um, you know, I would sit there and I would make planes and different things with the Legos and, you know, the TV would either be on or be watching it. So I guess some of the first things I noticed were like the local, uh, because I grew up in Detroit, right? Mm -hmm. So all of the, the local used car dealerships, you know, like the, the local commercials they would put out and all of the jingles that they would have in there. Um, <laughs> and I would go around and, and still to this day, oddly enough, I had a conversation at an airport with a guy from Detroit two days ago and we were going through all the old jingles from all the old 80s commercials, you know, and thought that it was interesting that a jingle was actually something that kept me, I still remember phone numbers from the 80s because of those things. And I think that that was something because I was so musically inclined and kind of auditory focused, like mm-hmm. that drew me into the visuals of what that were of what that meant and how, and learning to see how sound and audio, I guess, enhanced the visuals that were being seen on the screen and how it was it was like a dance, you know, between the visuals and the audio and. Um, so yeah, I guess that would have been my first one was just playing Legos in front of the TV and, um, you know, in between GI Joe and mask and silver Hawks and all that, you know, these, mm-hmm. uh, little local commercials would come on and, you know, it's funny now cause my kids, they see them, they call them commercial mellows <laughs> and they are, you know, when they were really young, you know, they kind of understand that I'm in that business now. My daughter's 11 and my son's seven, but you know, they're convinced for so long that the TV was broken 
you know, because they would be watching something and then it would just cut to these, you know, all the mid-roll commercials and everything. So the, <laughs> yes. the, the format is becoming like a big thing, you know, For with sure. the younger generations who just don't get that, you know, and the laugh tracks and all of that. So, yeah. you know, I was definitely a, a 1980s TV kid. So that's so you, where it all came. So Nathan, you opened this box. Um, hit me with a jingle. Oh, man. Just dial 988-2300-Empire. Oh, <laughs> yes. Call Empire today. Empire Carpet. You know, like That's that. So is, Even I know that one. Holy. Oh, you know that one yep, too. Yeah, for sure. So, like I can pull them. And there's like, you know, little local ones from Detroit and all that. Yeah. But I just, I think there's something to be said for jingles and, and music still. And they're... I, I don't know. Maybe this is a far out prediction, but maybe we'll see the return of jingles Ooh, uh, the coming return back of play jingles. eventually. You never know. <laughs> never, never know. know. <laughs> um, so Nathan, who are some of the designers and brands that you look up to and closely follow? And what about them do you like? Um, so I think that there's definitely certain designers. I, I don't see designers as an occupation. I see it as a way of approaching life and mm-hmm. uh, a way of approaching challenges with the intention of improvements. I think certainly like the old school, like David Carson, like the stuff he did with Ray Gun was super impactful on me. That was so punk rock as a kid, like seeing like, you know, growing up with mostly seeing, you know, car ads and things like that, you know, which are just kind of block text and, Uh, and all of that, like seeing like the work, how David, you know, just was able to kind of deconstruct and do all that. Um, I think that, you know, one of my biggest influences, and I don't know if you'd call him a designer or, but he is uh, in his own way, but, you know, Alex Boguski has been certainly a, a figure of, and I know that you're not supposed to have heroes as an adult and you're not supposed to look up to people so much, but I do, you know, in, in a lot of different ways as a person and, as a businessman and as a creative um he in my you know in my eye nobody's perfect but in my eyes he's somehow figured out that perfect balance between finding cultural insights and being yeah you know walking around the world with his eyes open and seeing opportunities with people and how they're interacting and then being able to actually craft together stories and execute on the appropriate channels in the right ways like um you know he's someone that i have certainly always um admired and to this day i try to keep him in my head as i'm making decisions now as a creative director and you know harking back to things that we did back in crispin days you know Mm -hmm. all those guys jeff benjamin rob riley um andrew keller uh, matt walsh um tiffany rolf um all of them like really are in my head on a daily basis and help kind of guide the decisions i'm making um so, yeah, I think, you know, I guess in terms of designers, I think, you know, Sagmeister had a huge impact on me in the past um, and his kind of shocking ability to, it became about the idea, not just the execution, mm-hmm. um, but the execution always supported what that idea was. And it was very immediate, it was very deliberate. Um, that's something that I certainly appreciate today. And even the, uh, in the, the means that, you know, the ephemeral content that's being put on Snap and IG stories and Facebook stories and all that, that immediacy and that kind of impact um, is something that, you know, maybe we've come full circle back to, you know, print and whatnot. But, um, you know, the idea that a single image can tell that story, you know, if it's done right. Um, and those have always been my favorite designers have been the ones that have removed the clutter. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and kind of removed the noise and just kind of got at the point. Um, and it was a clear message and, you know, I'm a bit of a minimalist at heart. Um, and it doesn't mean I just like minimal things. I just to like, in, in terms of my design aesthetics and the functionality, um, I prefer them to be streamlined and to be impactful. And, mm-hmm. um, because my design background comes from graphic design and a visual communication, um, format that when I was studying at college for creative studies in Detroit, um, under the chair, Doug Kaiser at the time, um, you know, we really, that's where it all kind of came from, uh, was that kind of school of thought. Man, those are some amazing names that you dropped there. Super talented people with, you know, that injected their, their personality and their life into their work. Yeah. And that was one of the big things for me is that, you know, you can go through the advertising or the design industry and check the boxes and you can, you know, it'll still be frustrating and stressful and, Mm -hmm. But it is at any, no matter how you look at it. But I think that the designers, I mean, the creatives in general that I've been fortunate enough to have been at the right time and the right place and to work with have, um, you know, been the ones who aren't just going to do a job. Mm -hmm. Um, They actually are using kind of our superpowers and the gifts that they've all been given to be able to make a difference and to say something and do something that matters. And not just put another ad out there, not just to put another design out there, but, um, you know, something that is culturally relevant um, and can live on, you know, something that people are going to be talking about after the campaign's over, you mm-hmm. know, in six weeks. Like, what will be that story next year, a couple of years later? Will people re- hark back and use that as reference as like a paradigm shift or, you know, kind of a, a new type of way of thinking for the industry? and. I think, you know, that those are the big swings that I'm trying to take here with R&R at the industry mm-hmm. is, you know, and the exciting part is, you know, taking all of the things that I've learned from my heroes in the design industry and in the creative industry and help apply that to a community here that that is is thirsty for that, you know, and it is and wants that and you know, I've I've never been more excited to be able to take those things and and help apply them here. That's cool. I like the word that you used to describe it. Um, you know, they're using their superpowers. Yeah. I like that. So yeah, um, that's something that came out of Facebook actually. And there's kind of a belief that, you know, everyone is given a superpower, mm-hmm. you know, from the universe. And it's like that thing that you can do better than a million other people. And I think one of the things as a creative, whether you're a designer, or a copywriter, or you're in the industry, allowing that superpower to speak mm-hmm. is like your franchise. That is like your value. That is yeah. what makes you different from like any other designer or any other creative and as even in the communities here at R&R partners like that's the cultural shift I'm trying to change is just because you have a title doesn't mean that you're passionate about a specific thing about that title or about that role right mm-hmm. so I've been trying to get to know everybody as individuals you know and find out who they are and what moves them outside of the office as well as inside the office and mm-hmm. try to find a parallel path um, to get them kind of go in that direction for sure. You had said um, in an answer for the last question about, um, you know, Snapchat and the instant immediacy going on, and you had mentioned the word print. Um, I want to ask you, where does print stand? And where does packaging stand in this digital world? Yeah, so I don't think that that will ever totally go away. It's just Mm -hmm. a different 
of the experience, right? It's the same voice. It's just through a different window or a different doorway. Um, whether that that voice is coming through an ephemeral digital piece on Snap or IG Stories, or whether that's coming through an outdoor piece or a print piece, um, it's the same personality, the same voice is just being projected onto a different surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, and something that I just did a kind of one of my little uh, TED talks here uh, at the agency a couple uh, or last week, and that came up because all of the same talents and gifts that we've been given for an eye for design an eye for typography and, and, you know, a mind for writing all of those kind of, you know, traditional skill sets that we came up learning, whether you went to college or art school or Mm self-taught, those are still just as important and just as impactful today as they have ever been Mm -hmm. because the same values, the same rules of communication and visual communication and how people see image and what that makes them feel um, still are just as important today. It's just the screen or the doorway into that, you know, might be a little different. And, you know, for a, a, a static, you know, Instagram story that people see for 15 seconds, you get the right image combined with the right message, the right typography and movement. And that is just as impactful as a print ad could be in a magazine. Um, obviously it travels a lot easier, you know, than a magazine. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, all of those principles, I think from a designer's mind, um, should be something that's embraced. Um, you know, I know that I'm, you know, starting to become a little bit older in the industry now after 20 years. And it's like, I have, you know, people talking to me as like, Oh, are you, you know, is design becoming irrelevant? And, you know, I like designing print and, you know, what if I don't have a job in five years? And it's like, you know, it's, you know, print and digital media is kind of, you know, digital is the, the screen of our generation. It is Mm -hmm. the, it's the canvas of our generation. Right. So years ago, another generation, someone had to figure out how to sell a chair in a newspaper, a little print posted size print kind of, you know, stamp that was in a newspaper. And it's like that must have seemed impossible for someone who the design field doesn't didn't even exist, you know, or copy. They're just (laughs) drawing a picture of a chair and saying, by now, you know, putting the price on it. Right. And expect that would work. Right. Then there was a whole nother generation after that that had to figure out how to sell that same chair over the radio right? And 30 seconds, and you can't even see the chair, man, Mm -hmm. you know, and they had to figure out, like, how do you use this new medium to be able to create commerce, you know, and in an artistic way, still uh, make it entertaining, you know, and whatnot. And then there's a whole nother generation after that, that had 30 seconds to sell a chair on a screen, Mm -hmm. you know, that couldn't sit in or anything. And, you know, you see where I'm going. And then, you know, uh, desktop computers, laptops, mobile right now. And so, you know, I always say that, you know, we should be embracing this as kind of a generation that we've been in it for 20 years, like, we should have a lot to add, you know, and a lot of things to be able to help share with the younger generation who's learning visual communication with ephemeral content and mobile as being like that core source of like, hey, man, that is the cool new concert poster, that is the rad new zine that, you know, is like punk rock, that is the new, you know, and so it's those same stories, those same messages, it's just a different experience and a different doorway of like experiencing those stories. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think that print is more important than ever. And certainly the thought process around print is still just as valuable today in a digital world as it has been before digital even existed. 
And have you had any um, recent interactions or examples or seen or witnessed projects that worked with print and social in tandem that mm. were that were executed well or anything that you've seen, you know, using mobile apps to interact with print or anything like that? Yeah, certainly. And we're working on some things here, but more on an environmental basis. But I, I had uh, one of my... One of my great friends at uh, at Facebook. I don't know if uh, should mention names, but um, he was working with a client on a essentially a social campaign, mm-hmm. um, and they loved the social campaign so much that they backed it into broadcast, which also backed it into a coffee book <laughs> that ended <laughs> up kind of you know sitting on people's table that applied to the brand and it made sense and it extended what happened on broadcast and digital. And I think that was really the interesting thing. And to see, you know, certainly working at social platforms over the, over the past years is to see if you can really nail a social content franchise, like a good creative idea, Mm -hmm. it can live as broadcast. Right. And I've seen it happen where they've, you know, where in many traditional agencies, everyone focused, everyone's focused on the big spearhead, TV spot that's going to change everything and set everything else. And then everything else just kind of like trickles down. Right. Mm-hmm. But I've seen it work from the other way. And that's, you know, where something, you know, there's just been a great series of posts from a brand and we end up turning that into print. We end up turning that into, you know, other things as well. So I think that's one of the big changes too. And there's nothing to say that, you know, a great social campaign couldn't come from a great print ad, mm-hmm. right. If the idea is right and you get it and you can just like continually riff off that and just yeah. like, create consistent creative and content around that. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, print will always have a importance in society mm-hmm. uh, is, you know, certainly for as long as we'll be alive. Um, but, <laughs> Definitely. I think, you know, yeah, it'll, it'll always be around and play an important role. Yeah. So the, um, you were at Facebook previously um, and I heard that Facebook actually put a magazine out within the last year or something like that. Do you know anything about that? Or were you a part of that? A magazine, like a public, uh, public facing magazine. Yeah. I, I thought, I, I don't know if it was distributed pub- publicly or if it was just internally or just for their business clients. Um, but there's yeah. a business related Facebook publication. Oh yeah. So I haven't seen anything that's been public, but certainly that during my years there, they've, you know, the different, teams like Instagram came out with an incredible flip book um, when they first came on board. And mm-hmm. um, oh, the, the, so the great thing about Facebook is they have this incredible analog lab um, on their uh, in their Menlo Park campus. And I it was the first place that my buddy Tom Gilmartin and also and ended up being my manager at the end. Mm-hmm. That's the first place he took me. They had offset printers. Um, they had courses there on, on sign, yeah, on sign painting, man, bookmaking courses, calligraphy, all that. And it is firmly grounded at the heart of their headquarters, like in their classic campus. That's and, insane. And it's beautiful, man, because, you know, the idea that, you know, it makes you ask like, is this a tech company? You know, like is there, it's just, like, <laughs> it's just a creative company, you know? Yeah. And it was such a, a beautiful realization to be starting this tech company on my first day, you know, like over six years ago mm-hmm. and being taken to the print shop 
you know, and looking through books, being able to print books, anybody could go in there. I think it's changed now. They've cut and kind of buttoned it up. But at, at that time, anybody could go in. You could print your own card. They had cards like giving to people who would come visit the campus of, you know, different small size posters that were kind of that people would see all over the campus. And mm-hmm. it's that was a, a beautiful, harmonious, like connective tissue between what you know, that company's doing and, and the idea of what digital kind of interactions are and mm-hmm. what traditional and print um, communications are. And they take into account, you know, just as much a serious and a love for the craft of print and, and traditional design at that company as they do digital. So that that's was phenomenal. incredible. Yeah. The Facebook analog lab. That's incredible. Yeah, and they have people, they have instructors there, they do fine art, they do three-dimensional pieces, they'll do different stuff around the campus. So they're really open to that stuff. That's awesome. Um, All right, Nathan, the next couple of questions I have for you take you down part of your career where you likely made some mistakes, uh, learned some lessons, and I want to pull those stories and lessons out of you and share those with the audience. Um, so what has been the most challenging time in your design career so far? Why was it challenging and how did you get through it? Yeah, this should be easy. I have, I should have so many to pull from. Um, (laughs) I think from a design standpoint, I think one of the big challenges and it still exists is the getting clients and brands to understand the value of designing for mobile still mm-hmm. um, and how the eco like a, a, a digital ecosystem really works together um, in totality and not thinking about them as individual kind of platforms. So I'm thinking about design these days as organizing creative and being able to inspire creative that fits within those different organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, harking back, like, so when I was a UX designer at Crispin, um, we had to design some of the first Facebook apps. Um, I don't know if you remember those, there were those things where they would basically, it was before, I think once mobile came in, they started, uh, kind of going away, but I had to, to come up with the UX design for Facebook, uh, for, uh, Whopper Sacrifice for Burger King, um, which allowed you to, uh, choose if you were uh, able to get rid of 10 of your friends for a free cheeseburger um, and get kind of that cultural uh, kind of nuance on there. But that was a big challenge because I was working off of, you know, I was at an agency, so I wasn't even at Facebook. So I was working off of screenshots that we basically just had to pull off of live sites mm-hmm. and be able to design the UX over the top of it and how we think we thought it could work. Um, and this kind of bleeds into Facebook a little too. And I think as a designer, if you're working at the cutting edge and the cusp of kind of what's possible, Mm -hmm. you're kind of building it in flight, right? So you're getting things close enough to what you think will work with the information you have at the moment. Um, and that's, you know, working within that some designers I think are able to work better within that kind of void of like not knowing exactly like you kind of have a taste. It's kind of like, you know, when a great band, like a jam band plays together, you know, like they don't know, like they kind of know the backbone of what they're doing, but then Mm -hmm. they're just able to riff, right? Like a good guitarist or a good, like, you know, horn player or something. They're just able to kind of like 
they all just kind of feel each other out and they just kind of run it forward. Right. And I think, you know, with UX design in that moment, and then even today working with these platforms and designing stuff for them, if you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable and you're feeling like you're moving into uncharted territory, like, and a little bit scared, like that's a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. Cause it makes you, it helps makes you, it gives you the opportunity to write down the questions that you need to learn, but also make something that someone hasn't done before. You know, perhaps as a designer, you've connected two ideas that, or two different pieces of work that somehow, um, you know, open up a whole new paradigm shift of thinking, right? So being able to draw those together, I think is, is very, very important. Oh, such a good one. So then, you know, the challenge for you in that was trying to work and create in that void. Right. With ambiguity, you know, and I think there's some designers that, you know, really enjoy and find, find not safety, but find comfort in structure, you Mm -hmm. know, and being kind of knowing like exactly what to do and exactly where this is going to be and exactly Mm -hmm. how it works and all of that. And there's other designers I think that I've met that, that, kind of have a thirst for that ambiguity, that void, and that you don't know something to kind of pioneer into that uncharted territory. Mm-hmm. Um, and those have always been the most challenging, I think, situations for me as a designer, but also the most exciting. Um, you know, some of them have ended up in patents or getting made or winning awards. And, you know, most of them have ended up failing. However, the questions that you are forced to ask yourself or to get answered when you're moving into uncharted territory helps you grow as a person and as a designer and overall as your career. So really well said. Definitely. So now I want to get a little bit more specific. I want to talk about a, a design or a project, a particular one that you were a part of that did not go well or bring the desired result. Um, what was that like? How did that feel? Can you take us to that story? Yeah, there was one about a there was one about a year ago um, that my buddy Alan Holmes and I uh, had been working on at Facebook, and it was something that we had developed on the fringes. You know, it wasn't something we were briefed on. It's not something mm-hmm. that we were told to work on. It was just an opportunity that we both happened to see at the same time, and we started working towards. Um, and it got to the point where what we wanted to do is basically package it up into a deck where we could show the idea, you know, state the challenge, here's the idea, here's how it's solving it. Um, and then being able to show kind of the mock-ups and everything of how that would work in mobile. This was actually for a messenger, um, kind of idea for a, a messenger bot. And so we, we put it together and we were just stoked on it and we took it to, um, to internal, you know, and, um, Andrew Keller, uh, is still there, but he was, um, running creator shop at that time. And he was all stoked on it. Everyone was stoked on it. We got it to the client. Um, one of the clients was stoked on it. The other one wasn't. And, you know, it was just one of those situations where it was like, you know, if we could have, you know, if I could have just swapped like the, the, those two clients and the other one would have been stoked on it, then mm-hmm. it probably would have gone forward. But I think that it's one of those scenarios where um, you also have to keep a sense of humor. And, you know, I have the problem of falling in love with work. 
Um, not just not not just not just my work, but I fall in love with other people's work too. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that because you take it personally, and I think of what I'm doing as more than just a job. You know, it's it's what we get up and spend our day doing every day, man. You know, yeah. like so I try to make it what it is, and but it for, we learned several things from that. Not only about the logistics about bots and how they work, but we learned about how to package things. Um, and so the best thing that you can do from that and the best respect that you can show a project that gets killed is to learn from it, you know, and to do the respect of carrying on the story from that cod- from that project that died, carrying it on to other projects and other things and learning from that. So, mm-hmm. um, you know how to better set things up, um, and, and kind of able to, you know, um, not make the same mistake twice, but, I've certainly made the same mistake twice. So shame on <laughs> about certain things. But yeah, sometimes you just see it. As soon as you're you're in it, you've already made a decision, and you go, "Ah, oh, damn, I'm here again." Yeah, it's like I remember I did that like five years ago, and the hell with me for doing the same thing. <laughs> <You> know, <but laughs> sometimes this is how it goes. Yeah, um, Nathan, what's something that you're struggling with in your design career right now? Um getting the design to align with client KPIs Um, because there comes a certain point at a level with a client where they don't care about design, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, they, they do, you know, they want it to look good, but any design change ends up becoming a conversation about, well, how does this hit my goal that I set for you? Mm -hmm. How does this hit this KPI, you know, and doing that. And, um, I think that, you know, the user experience of the design of some of our digital properties that we're working on here at R and R um, have a lot of opportunity to evolve um, with our business goals, and I think that working between developers, designers, um, and clients. That's kind of my biggest challenge as a creative director right now is just aligning everyone. Um, and it gets to a point too, where my difficult thing is like, how far do you just try to get everyone aligned before like then an idea just loses itself and it just becomes watered down and the design, mm-hmm. you know, of a, the design of an idea just becomes, you know, kind of muddled. And I think that's something we're working through, not just from, a graphic design and UX design perspective, but how we're designing our working processes and our creative processes. And um, that's how I'm kind of looking at design these days is designing, you know, better ideas and more beautiful creative through processes and through um, making sure that um, the research and the client goals are matched with what our designs are looking like. And Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, you know, I think I've always struggled with this as, you know, coming up as a designer is finding that kind of that line between art and design and what that is. And everyone will define this differently, but how I've personally kind of find this is, you know, design is communicating a very specific and clear message where fine art is leaving interpretation open you know, for people to decide what they think of it or what it means to them. And, um, one of the challenges and the curses of being a designer or just a creative and and having a client is being able to communicate that effectively and Mm -hmm. showing that a monetary value from a subjective 
point of view, which creativity and design is sometimes seen as subjective. And so what I've been trying to do is um, work with our research teams here um, and working to have agendas that are based off data so that we can justify decisions, design decisions that we're making based on insert or insights and research and how this could affect, you know, the monetary side of things mm -hmm. or the engagement side of things, like whatever a client's, you know, KPI is. Um, so that's kind of my big challenge now is, and it's a fun challenge, you know, like it's, um, <laughs> it's because I think that, you know, once people are understanding that workflow and seeing how, you know, once a client can kind of understand like, wow, creativity can actually build business, you know, yeah. and good design can actually move business. And sure. it's a, it's a realization for someone in, who's sitting in a suit and looking at spreadsheets, you know, that they're like, wow, you know, it, it, it clicks something on and that also builds trust and it builds freedom, right? Freedom is a result of the trust that you have with a, a client for them, that they trust you and that there's a crazy idea, but we've made good decisions in the past. So let's try this design. Let's try <laughs> let's this roll idea with it or whatever it is. And like, yeah, go with it. Right. Yeah. All right. Um, I want to turn this bus around for you. And I want to ask you now about a project that you've been a part of that you're the most proud of. Um, the one project I'm most proud of. So there was a project um, in my previous life that we worked on. We partnered with an agency and it was around the Affordable Health Care Act. Okay. And um, it was one of those moments where I got a call on a weekend. I think it was a Saturday at like 1 p.m. You know, like I was totally on week, like, I got, you know, kids, mode. family, everything, like at the park, like, yeah, in it. Yeah. And um, my colleague of mine uh, from the New York office was said, you know, said, hey, you know, there's some funny business going on with the, you know, Affordable Health Care Act. Um, and there's a project that we can work on this weekend and get it in front of the agency and the client by Monday. Um, and, you know, it, it will save lives. And, you know, I was like, so very interested. I was like, wow, how can we do this? And so um, essentially what happened um, is that for a period of time, um, certain administrations were essentially s shutting down the Affordable Health Care Act website mm -hmm. on the weekends for maintenance. Uh, <laughs> and because, uh, and that was where the, when they were getting 90% of their signups were on the weekends, right? Because people Perfect. are working during the day, right? Yeah. And so somewhere, some someone down the line decided that they would shut down the, on the weekends to help, well, to not help. So this was something that was important to me, you know, as someone who is an advertising, someone who's a designer, someone who's a rebel, someone who cares deeply and compassionately for other people that I, even if I don't understand them and, you know, um, so, um, what we did was we ended up developing a concept, a mock and a prototype by Monday morning that went to the agency and to the client um, for with a budget of zero dollars, zero production dollars, um, and zero media dollars. And we went to market, um, I, that week we got approved off and we went live and went to market. Um, and ultimately we were able, this, uh, bot that we had built, this AI bot that we had built, 
um, allowed people to speak to and to register for affordable health care for themselves, for their children, for their families. Um, hundreds of thousands of people were able to register for health care and go home safe knowing, you know, that they had something, you know, to mm-hmm. even in, with all the politics that were going on at, at the time. Um, it felt good to know that I and my teammates were able to use our superpowers for something that actually impacted real people, you know, and real families. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, there were, there's some other things like I also helped work on the ALS ice bucket challenge as well, which was a big one. Um, you know, obviously hugely impactful on a cultural level. Um, but that work that we were able to do with, um, you know, on a weekend and actually go towards getting people healthcare was, there is no other feeling like that. So was uh, this, was this a bot that basically would allow people to register and give information over the weekend and then it would automatically put it through the website during the week when it was back open? So essentially, it gave you the resources and the people and the numbers to be able to call to do that and also to, you know, give your email address to actually uh, to have that conversation to get to reach out to someone individually. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, the Im- positive impact was is that it wasn't connected to the site, so it didn't get shut down. And that Perfect. was the whole goal, right? As if government communities were shutting this down, we had to do something on the side. Mm-hmm. to at least get them through that weekend and so they can get them to the exact right person, you know, on, on that next Monday morning. Wow. That is impactful, Nathan. That was incredible. Um, yeah. So we're at the point of the show right now for the ask it forward question. I've got a question for you from my last guest and you get an opportunity to ask a question of my next guest. So it was funny that you had said that you were an avocado aficionado because my previous guest had a question relating to guacamole. So my last guest was yeah, it was Marisol Ortega. She's been with Starbucks Global Creative. She's been with Amazon. Uh, she's down in Seattle and she's a freelance designer and illustrator now. And she first wanted part one of this question is, do you put sour cream in your guacamole? Oh, no. No, never. I never taint. I I am, as you said, an avocado aficionado. So Mm. I prefer as much avocado. I put a little onion, put a little lime juice, put a little tomato in there and you're good to go, really. Mm -hmm. Um, But however, that being said, I will say this. um, This is a realization. So thank you, Marisol, for the question and helping me uh, (laughs) bring awareness to my own avocado uh, eating habits. But when I eat tacos or a burrito, I do put sour cream on it with the guacamole. Interesting. So maybe I should give it a shot. I don't know. Maybe I should try it out and see if it works. Well, part two of her question was, um, you know, if you don't, do you think sour cream would add to the guacamole experience? I think it could add a certain cream factor that could like, you know, uh, warm it up a little bit and get that kind of that warm kind of creamy sensation. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I like my guacamole kind of chunky. So, uh, you know, I feel like maybe the, uh, the sour cream could possibly like maybe water, you know, water it down a little bit, but I don't know. I'm gonna give it a shot. Perfect. uh, That's an interesting interesting (laughs) conversation. Awesome question. So, uh, Nathan, what is the question you would like me to ask the next guest? Oh, let's see. Um, do I know who the next guest is or who no, the sir. next 
I don't. Okay. Well, I know, but I'm not going to tell you. Okay. Let's see. How about this? How about baseball or roller skating? I'll do either or. Either or. Baseball or roller skating. Yeah. I like it. See what they think. See if that riffs like like a life story or a, uh, <laughs> something off that. I like it. Man, Nathan, you made it to the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for being a guest. I really appreciate your time here. Hey, it's my pleasure. And, uh, you know, let me know anytime you want me to come back. Always happy to talk with you. All right. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Quickie-ish podcast. I definitely went over time with Nathan, but man, I just, I couldn't stop. We just wanted to keep going. His stories were incredible. The, the information he was sharing, the value he was sharing, I had to just let it run and bring it to you guys. And I'm so happy I did. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate your time and I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>